Welcome to Risk Never Sleeps, where we meet and get to know the people delivering patient care and protecting patient safety. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet. Welcome to the Risk Never Sleeps podcast, in which we discuss the people that are protecting patient care. I'm Ed Gaudet, the host of our program, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Frank Riccardi, cybersecurity and data privacy expert and author of Mobilizing the C-Suite. Managing the War Against Cyber Attacks. Welcome, Frank. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here, Ed. Excellent, excellent. And you've got some really interesting background. Obviously, you're an author. You are a juris doctor, a lawyer, practicing yes. lawyer still? or uh, No, I haven't practiced in 25 years no. since I got into healthcare compliance. I've been in compliance and privacy and internal audit. And by virtue of being chief privacy officer, I got a lot of exposure to data breaches and ransomware attacks, unfortunately, and that's where I built up my experience in cybersecurity. Excellent. So take us through your background. You've worked at some really impressive hospitals, Cone and Adventist and Trinity. And Yeah. So I retired towards the end of 2021 mm-hmm. after 25 years in healthcare compliance. And I did stints as a chief compliance and privacy officer for healthcare systems that owned hospitals and physician practices and Medicare managed plans. And as I said, by virtue of being chief privacy officer, did a lot of work managing privacy breaches and cybersecurity events and worked very closely with CISOs and cybersecurity staff. When I retired, I wrote a book, Mobilizing the C-Suite, Waging War Against Cyber Attacks. And I wrote the book, Ed, because in my career, I found that executives understood what compliance was and they understood internal audit. They got that. It's been around a long time. They got data privacy, but they never quite grasped cybersecurity. They never quite grasped cyber hygiene some of the basic principles. And I wrote the book to help leaders, C-suite leaders and board members and others, not only understand basic cyber hygiene, but to embrace their massive accountability when a data breach is successful, unfortunately, and their accountability in making sure that the CISO is supported and that the cybersecurity program is effective. And I also wrote the book to help cybersecurity professionals teach the workforce about cyber hygiene. And what inspires me to write and speak about cybersecurity is we continue to have a worldwide epidemic of ransomware. Mm -hmm. We have daily phishing attacks. We have daily credential stuffing attacks. And we have the most awful kind of cyber attack you can imagine, romance scams. And people don't think of that as a cyber attack, but it is. And Mm -hmm. my goal is I want to educate and teach and help people and companies so that they're not victims of cyber attacks. But at the end of the day, if I can help just one person not be the victim of a romance scam or a phishing scam or ransomware in their personal lives, I feel like I've done my job. That's terrific. And we're going to unpack the book. But before we do that, how did you get into healthcare? Kind of by accident. I was a practicing lawyer. I did general practice law. I did matrimonial, personal injury. And this was many, 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 many years ago. I'm I'm too old to say how long it was, but I decided I want to move my career into medical malpractice field because it was very lucrative and I had a lot of colleagues doing well with that. So I started taking courses and eventually I got a degree in clinical laboratory science and I got the degree towards about maybe 1997 or so, which was about the time of the infamous Operation Lab scam Mm -hmm. that occurred with the OIG and the Department of Justice, and they were investigating laboratories for fraud and noncompliance. And what ended up happening is I got hired by a laboratory consulting firm 
to do compliance audits and help laboratories manage that process. And so it accidentally led me to a completely different career. And from the laboratory consulting, I ended up in healthcare. And you stayed in it for a while. And I stayed in it for 25 years. Yeah. I really love the mission and the values mm. of healthcare organizations, you know, and nothing wrong with working for a company that makes widgets or makes cars. I think that's great. But the mission of patient care is something special. And my first big job was with Trinity Health, which was a faith-based organization. Mm -hmm. And I just got hooked. And so I stayed in healthcare and I still love healthcare. And anybody that's in healthcare, they're really doing God's work because they're helping people at their most vulnerable time in their mm -hmm. life. So Right. And everyone's a patient. Everyone knows Every a patient and everyone has loved ones that are patients. And yeah. so it truly is a shared mission. And that Absolutely. affects everybody. So I'm a technologist by trade and, you know, healthcare was always that one industry that I just never got into early in my career because they were always behind everyone from a technology perspective. Yeah. And then when high tech and ARA hit in 2009, 2010, yeah. it just made sense yeah. because there was this forklift upgrade now for healthcare from an mm -hmm. infrastructure perspective and they were starting to acquire and apply new technologies. So and I'm so glad I got into it because now I'll never get out of it. Right? Yeah, you get hooked. You a, get to you get, like you said, you get hooked. It's you get uh, hooked. You know, and the relationships are so different too. And the people are just, I mean, it's not that they're easy, but they're just nicer again, because we are working together. Yeah. And the whole raison d'etre of healthcare hmm. is the ultimate in customer care. Yes. They're really patient care, but it is the ultimate. And you're right. You have really great relationships. Not like it's like any company that you have your ups and downs, but at the end of the day, you're all going towards a very important mission. That's right. And when cyber sort of jumped the other side of the street and became a risk to patient safety, yes, that's yeah. when it started to get really interesting and scary, right? And yeah. real. And so talk to me about what you learned over just the last five years and how mm -hmm. differing it's been since the previous couple decades. So I would say, I'll even go back maybe 10 years, I would be in meetings with healthcare organizations and they would ask a question about cybersecurity. And at some point, someone would stay up and get up and it'd be a consultant and they would say, don't worry about it. As big as you are, you're just not big enough for these cyber criminals and gangs. They're looking for these big targets. And now everybody's big enough. They're going after little dermatology practices, two or three physician dermatology practices and if they can lock down the, the patient record with ransomware, they will make a ransom demand and they don't have to make a big ransom demand. They don't right. care. So now they're going after everybody. So I think one of the things that's changed is maybe 10 years ago, only the big companies were targets. Everybody's a target now. It's unbelievable. The other thing that has changed is I think there's been a sea change since the global pandemic where leaders are now really starting to understand their level of accountability. And the example that I will give you is in 2021, there were three huge cyber attacks that just changed the zeitgeist of the culture in the United States of America. And then one was Colonial Pipeline mm -hmm. and it got shut down for ransomware. And so for a week, people on the East Coast of the United States from Texas to New Jersey couldn't fill up their gas tank. There was Schreiber Foods, which is a big dairy conglomerate and uh, ransomware shut down their dairy processes so there was a cream cheese shortage in 2021. You couldn't get a shear on your bagel. And then the other big one was JBS Foods, and they're a Brazilian meatpacking giant. 
and their processing plants in the United States were shut down. And so you couldn't get your turkey sandwich. So what happens is pre-pandemic, people think ransomware is in cyberspace and it's synonymous with data breaches. But because of these three events, people now say, wait a minute, I can't get a shimmer on my bagel. I can't fill up my gas tank. I can't get a ham and turkey sandwich. It's ransomware actually can physically affect me in my real life. It can come in the physical world. And so what ends up happening is the general public is now, by reading things in the newspaper and watching TV, they're getting more sophisticated and they find out with Colonial Pipeline. What happened is that there was a cyber criminal gang called Darkside and they stole a password from an employee that left the organization. And we think that that stolen password was just a reused password. So the employee was signing in as everybody was working remote in the pandemic. They were signing into Colonial Pipeline Systems with a VPN, and they were using a password that they probably were using somewhere else. And so DarkSide probably bought it on the dark web. They stuffed it into the VPN, and it worked. So what the public learns is this. One of the tried and true internal control mechanisms in cybersecurity is when somebody quits the organization, you terminate access to their systems. Well, Colonial Pen didn't do that. They didn't terminate that employee's access to the VPN. It was a live VPN. Mm. The other thing is you teach your employees don't reuse your passwords. Maybe they didn't do that, but this person looks like what they did. The last thing, if that VPN would have been protected by multi-factor authentication, exactly. when right. dark side credentials stuffed yeah. that password into the VPN, wouldn't they wouldn't have right. had the one-time numeric right. code and no. it would have been thwarted. Yeah. And the public learns this and they're like, oh my gosh, Basic cyber hygiene would have prevented the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack. And now when these attacks happen, and if they're successful because a company didn't patch their systems, didn't use multi-factor authentication, or maybe a laptop was lost, but they didn't encrypt it, the public is now just as angry at the C-suite leaders as they are at the cyber criminals. It's a sea change in accountability. And so basic cyber hygiene is more important than ever. That's right. And with the SEC changes now and with what's happening in New York, the new data privacy rule yep. that just hit and their whole cybersecurity strategy, which again, they're trying to lay out for the nation, right? Yeah. It's going to start get really interesting, especially when executives are going to be on the hook mm-hmm. for these attacks. Whereas before, like you said, oh, it's the IT organization or it's our cyber team. Or I wrote an article, uh, I think a couple of years ago now, Forbes magazine, where I laid out this notion and that boards have to be accountable for cybersecurity. Just like you have a audit committee, just like you have a finance committee, just like you have a comp committee. Yeah. Cybersecurity needs its own committee and it needs to be chaired by people that understand cybersecurity. It can't be someone's, you know, uncle, aunt, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that will make a huge change as well mm-hmm. to the level of understanding and the level of investment and resources that the teams will get moving forward. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Cybersecurity expertise at the board level is critical, and it's no longer going to work if there is a cyber attack and you fire the CISO. That won't work anymore. Maybe it worked in the past, but it will not work anymore. The C-suite and the board has to be accountable for cybersecurity. Exactly. So let me uh, go back to something you said earlier about the two-provider dermatology office. Yeah. What can they do? Because they clearly don't have a CISO on staff. They clearly don't have millions of dollars they can spend on technology. So what would you tell that two-person 
dermatology office? If they haven't already gotten bought up by a big healthcare system, I'll give you two answers. If you are a dermatology practice and you are part of a big healthcare system and the healthcare system CIO or CISO says, hey, I need to take your information systems and roll it up into my EHR and I need to extend my cybersecurity program to you, you have to let them do it. You don't want to become a shadow IT dermatology department doing your own thing because then you are vulnerable to an attack. So first thing is listen to the health system CISO and do what he or she says. Now, the second thing I would say is if you are on your own and you don't have a, have a CISO, one of the things you might be able to do is there are some vendors out there that are pretty cost effective that they can set up a cybersecurity program for you soup the nuts. Some of them can do your patches. They can teach your staff cyber hygiene. They can help you with multi-factor authentication, and they can do it on a pretty cost-effective basis, especially when they have a lot of clients. And that might be your best bang for your buck. Don't try to do it on your own. Try to outsource it to a cybersecurity vendor that will, will do this for you. If you don't want to do that, then you're going to have to find somebody in your organization or hire somebody that's tech savvy enough that they're going to understand about phishing and how emails can come to your employees and they ask for a survey or click on the link and they upload ransomware. And it's really hard to do. It's not intuitive, but you're going to have to find somebody to help you, whether you hire it or you get a vendor to do it. If you're a small dermatology practice or any kind of small business might need a little bit of help. Great advice, great points. And to the listeners, I'll also note that there are a number of free guides available through the HHS, the 405D program, as well as CISA has uh, free assets and documentation and tools you can look at. Obviously, uh, Frank, I was teeing that up for your book, but you didn't, you didn't. Uh, oh, I didn't go for it. You can, you can also mention your book too now. I'll get hold you, it you up. are talking about this yeah, book. Yeah, there okay, it is. Right. Man, I'm telling you, thank you for the softball. I am just. I love that you didn't take it though, actually. That even okay. says more. I love that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So take a look at Frank's book if you haven't already. Want to hold it up one more time for folks? I would love to hold it up one yeah. more time. And there you go. it is going to give you small dermatology people, the basics of cyber hygiene. So you'll be able to protect your organization. I absolutely love the title too. It's so true. Mobilizing the C-suite. Like we're all in this together. We're stronger yep. together, Yep. but we do have to work in concert. It can't be the purview of one department trying to work across all departments. It works from the top down. Cybersecurity, like everything else, tone at the top. It does. I often say the fish rots from the head down. Right? So. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, a good one. <laughs> You know, I love your background, compliance, privacy, security. If you were in front of a C-suite, oftentimes this notion of cybersecurity and privacy and the nuances of the two things gets lost. How would you describe the two and how would you point out the differences? I love the question. So as someone who has had experience as chief privacy officer, but I've never been a CISO, mm -hmm. but I've worked very closely with CISOs in cybersecurity. And I hear a lot of talk about privacy versus cybersecurity. And I never saw that in my career because every time I had a privacy breach or an incident, it was always a cybersecurity matter, always a cybersecurity incident. And whenever the CISO had a cybersecurity incident, it was a breach. It was a breach. It was privacy. So I view privacy as being the arm that is educating the workforce on privacy issues. If you're in healthcare, it's on HIPAA. If you're in a different business, it might be a different law. When there's a breach, the privacy team would manage the breach. So they're going to work with your cyber liability carrier, with your attorneys, 
They're going to work with marketing. They're going to work, you know, get the notices out. They're going to be involved with legal counsel and fending off any or being involved in, shouldn't say in managing any lawsuits. The cybersecurity team is extremely important because they are going to do the forensic lay work. They are going to tell me, CPO, this is how the attack happened. It was credential stuffing, or it was phishing, or some kind of social and engineering. Here's what happened. Here's how we stopped the bleeding. We stopped the bleeding. We fixed it. They would usually file a police report on it. And then they're deeply involved in the, in the technical pieces, because at least in, in my world, at my level, we had cyber insurance. And the cyber insurance carrier would give you what's called a, a privacy coach. And then they would also have a forensic team. And I could work with the privacy coach, but I really needed the CISO to work with the forensics team because very often they had to go into their systems and look and see exactly where things happen. So I always saw privacy and security hand in glove, working very closely together at one side of a coin. They're very close. I could see in the future the two departments being fused because in theory, most organizations I've worked with, the CISO reported to the CIO not optimal, really. The CISO should not report to the CIO, but if you took privacy and cybersecurity, put them in a different department, it could roll up to anybody other than the CIO, and then you truly have freedom from any conflicts of interest. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if that actually ends up happening. I know at HCA, that's what happened, actually. That was a peer to the CIO and, and managed all of those aspects of security, whether it's be mm-hmm. cyber, as well as physical security and mm-hmm. privacy in that one, mm-hmm. one organization. So we're going to switch some topics here and ask you a little bit about you, Frank. Sure. You go back in time. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? My 20-year-old self, I would say, Frank, you're no doubt very handsome and smart fellow. Of course. (laughs) But you need to always try to step outside your wheelhouse and find things that you're not good at and dabble in them because that will broaden your horizon. So if you are not good in math, learn to make change, take an algebra course. If you're not good in public speaking, go to Toastmasters, learn how to do public speaking. And it's advice that all your listeners could take to heart. Because in my own life, when I was in high school, I had a tremendous fear of public speaking. I hated it. And when I got into college, I just said, I'm going to force myself to get out there. And I found that I was funny. I was witty. I liked the back and forth. And I fell in love with public speaking and I ended up going to law school. So, Uh you know, you might think you're bad at something. And if you dabble in it, the whole world could open up to you. That's right. Yeah, no, that's so great. In fact, you know, it's surprising that there's a survey, I guess they ask once a year, uh, what people are most afraid of. And Public speaking, I think, is usually one or two. Frank, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this question because this is the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. Okay. What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? So the riskiest thing I ever did was when I was in high school, I lived in upstate New York where it was very cold and snowy. And on a really cold, bitter, snowy day, just on a lark, I don't know why I did it. I hopped in my car and I drove to a ski mountain. And I went to the ski lodge and I rented skis and poles. And I trudged up the mountain. And then I attempted to ski down the mountain without any lessons, without ever having put on skis, without ever having any lessons. And I took the hardest moguls I could find. Now, Ed, I'm not going to tell you I actually skied down the mountain. I tumbled down the mountain and it was very risky. I could have broke my neck. I could have broke my my arm or something. It was really stupid. When I got home later that week, I talked to my uncle, Joe. I told him what I did. He thought it was funny. He said, Frank, I'm going to take you out skiing. So he took me out skiing one day. Little did I know, and I did teach me how to ski, but his real reason 
was he wanted to teach me how to get up when I fell. Uh, and so we went skiing, taught me how to ski. We went skiing. Sure enough, I fell down, could not get up. He comes over. I outreach my hand. He bats it away. So I'm not going to help you get up. I'm going to teach you how to get up. So he told me where to put the skis, how to put them down and angle them just right. And with the poles. And if you follow the procedure, you can pop right up. Yeah. And right. sure enough, I popped right up. Yeah. And after that, I had a lot more confidence because I knew if I fell down, I could get up. But it was a very important life lesson, Ed, because the thing of it is, we're human beings and we're going to fall down. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do dumb things or people are going to push us down. Maybe they don't like us. Maybe they're bullies. But if you know how to get up, you're going to be just fine in life because you're going to fall down and you want to avoid it, but you just got to know how to get up and everything will be good. So riskiest thing was skiing without lessons, but you know, I guess I got a life lesson out of it. Yeah, no, that's terrific. Terrific story. I love that question because I always get some really interesting stories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> about people. That's yeah. a new one. That's a unique one. I like it. This is where I get to call the audible because I heard something about you that's not on your LinkedIn page. Okay. I hear you're a vinyl collector. I am. I'm an <laughs> yeah. So let's talk music. I would love to talk music. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll let you ask. I was going to well, ask. Well, I, I was going to ask. I mean, I love music too. So first okay. off, do you have a, a high end system that you listen to? I do. I have a peach tree integrated amplifier, nice. which is sweet and I love it. <laughs> And it's the greatest integrated amplifier I've ever had. You know, you can spend 10, 20 oh, and more yes. on an integrated Hundreds of thousands amplifier. of dollars on yes. Macintosh systems. And that. It's nuts. Yeah. And this one was thousands of dollars too. But I will tell you for the money, it's the best sounding I've ever heard. But the way they designed it, it's the most simple, easiest integrated amplifier. I almost call it the iPhone of integrated amplifiers. Mm. It's so simple and fun. I have really good speakers. And uh, I have a, forget exactly what you call it, but it's a little device and it's got a test tube. And when I turn it on, it can give the analog sound a test tube warmth to it. Oh. So it's really sweet. It's a really nice setup. Wow. Okay. So what's on your turntable now? So Ed, what goes great with a coffee, cocktail, or cold one on a Friday afternoon? Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Well, that too. Oh, pretty close. Or, <laughs> Link, or Ray. Link Ray Rumble, his greatest hits 1956 to 1962. I love that. For your listeners, what I'd like to just let them know about this album, I highly recommend it. He had a smash hit in 1959. It was called Rumble. And it had three power chords. It's just famous, twang, twang, twang. And it was so seductive that the song was banned throughout the United States because people thought... He was going to stoke teenage violence and gang wars. Mm. But Pete Townsend of The Who, as a young man, heard the song, and he, I want to say a quote. So Pete Townsend of, of The Who, if it hadn't been for Link Ray and Rumble, I would never have picked up a guitar. Wow. So if it hadn't been for Link Ray, we would have had The Who, one of the greatest rockers uh, of all time. Absolutely. So, have, you, um, have you seen The Who in concert? I've not seen The Who in Casa. Oh, do you go to shows at all? Do you go to any? It's been a long time since I've gone to shows. I used to go a lot many, many years ago. I haven't gone to one in a long time. So you collect vinyl. So what yes. types of genre, anything really interesting? or you? I don't know if there's anything really interesting. I like classic rock, and I'm going to define that as 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Okay. So that's kind of the genre that I like. But I recently came across a hard rock band called Dream Theater. I don't know if you ever heard of that. I do know them. Yeah. Okay. And I absolutely love Dream Theater. Mm -hmm. And that's one that, boy, when I turn up my stereo and I get my test tube going, you can really hear everything. It's just a wonderful yeah. 
wonderful band. Would love to see them in concert. Friends of mine, we started at one point during the pandemic, just before a vinyl club, and, oh. and which I love. And so I have, you know, I was a collector of albums oh. for many years. And then I went to CD and I have about, I don't know, 5,000 CDs that I've put on a Brennan. Do you know the Brennan device? No, I haven't heard yeah, of it. It's basically a Pi device that you can stream all of your CDs from. And it's pretty, oh, wow. It's got a nice interface. And, wow. And, okay. Yeah. So you can, you know, you rip them to the, the device and you get to share them, whatever. I love the sound of music on a vinyl with a nice set of speakers. Mm -hmm. And you can pick up things like I brought the uh, Ziggy Stardust album. Oh, nice. And so in the vinyl club, we play one side of an album, right? Mm -hmm. And I just remember listening to that and I was like, wow, just like opened up things I had never heard before because I didn't have that fidelity. Just incredible. Just incredible. Yeah. There's something that's wonderful too about the imperfection of analog mm -hmm. that you put on the vinyl record and cracks and pops and scratches, but it's warm. It's part of the ambiance. And there's something I think you lose by the perfection of digital Agreed. that I can't explain unless you just listen to the vinyl and just enjoy it. Yeah. Everything feels compressed and pushed together. Yes. Like everything's sort of like, and you can't make it. It's really difficult to make out those, those notes and the imperfections, obviously. So I don't often ask this question, but I will to you. Okay. You're on a desert island and you can only bring five albums. Ah. No greatest hits. Okay. What are the five? The first Doors album, oh. <laughs> that would be there. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Wow, two for two, okay. Yep, I would say probably Moody Blues, Nights in White Satin. I would say it would be Elton John, and what was the album where he... Oh, Tumbleweed? I'm drawing a blank on the Elton John album, but it was one of the Elton John albums. And then I probably would have a Foo Fighters album because I'm also a big Foo Fighters fan. Ah, Foo Fighters. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Foo Fighters have a great, I mean, what a great library of songs. Oh, by the way, it was Captain Fantastic. Oh, Durant the Car Brown Dirt Cowboy. Yes, Some Elton John. Someone Saved My Life Tonight. That was it. Thank favorite you. songs by Elton John. You know what? I could not pull that out of my I brain. I love Thank that you. song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, a friend of mine who actually ended up developing, building integrated receivers and amps and things. Oh, nice. Do you know Krell? You ever heard of Krell? Mm, no, I, think it's, I think it's called Krell. Anyway, they're, they're no longer around. He went to Harmon Carden too. I remember when we were kids, and I forget how old we were, probably I don't know, seven years old, and he brought that album out. <laughs> I heard oh, that for the first yeah. time. I'm like, yeah. what is this? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, that was terrific. Any last parting comments to our listeners, Frank? I guess the only parting comments, I'm active on LinkedIn. So if anybody's interested in learning about me and what I do, please hop on over to my LinkedIn profile page. And if you want to learn about me, that's probably the best place, but you could also interact with me and you can follow me or you can send me a connection request. I'd be happy to accept it. And next to my smiling face on my LinkedIn page to the right, there's a bell. And if you click on that bell, every time I do a post, you'll get notified of it. And I post on compliance and privacy and cybersecurity. And I even did a post on Link Ray. So oh. <laughs> you can read about Link Ray and you can love him as much as I do. <laughs> All right. All right, folks. So that is Frank Riccardi joining us. And again, check out his book, Mobilizing the C-Suite, Managing the War Against Cyber Attacks. This is Ed Gaudet from the Risk Never Sleeps podcast. If you're on the front lines protecting patient safety, remember to stay vigilant because risk never sleeps. 
Thanks for listening to Risk Never Sleeps. For the show notes, resources, and more information on how to transform the protection of patient safety, visit us at sensinet.com. That's C-E-N-S-I-N-E-T.com. I'm your host, Ed Gaudet, and until next time, stay vigilant because risk never sleeps.